I'd like to read a couple of passages of Scripture before we pray this morning, which I think are very appropriate to the time in which we are at this moment. I'm going to read the first passage from 2 Chronicles chapter ele- uh, 7, and this has to do with the dedication of the temple by Solomon. And part of it, of course, you know well and has been quoted frequently during this time, but let me read the passage from verse 11 to verse 22. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, Then I will uproot you from my land, which I have given you, and this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. As for this house, which was exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them from the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore he has brought all this adversity on them. Before I read the other passage, let me just make the comment that to Israel, the temple of Solomon was so much more a symbol of who they were and who their God was than anything that we have lost in this country in this past week by far. Because it was considered inviolate was considered by them something God would never allow to be destroyed because it was his house and they were his people. And no matter what they did, they would still be his people. And no matter what they did, his house would be preserved. But of course, as we read in this passage, that was not so. But they didn't pay attention. And in the day when the enemy came, they refused to believe that God would allow the temple to be destroyed. And they were in utter awe. You probably have, have, have read the story of Jeremiah sitting on the hill and lamenting over the city of Jerusalem that had been destroyed because God's people had turned from him. I'd like to read Psalm 85 now because I think Psalm 85 sort of fits here. It is a psalm of repentance. You showed favor on your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned aside from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, 
and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints. But let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, and his glory, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Father, as we come to you today, we're so grateful for your word. And so many passage, passages which were read at the National Cathedral on the day of prayer. Oh God, we're so grateful for a man who sits at the head of this country who professes faith and, and who demonstrated that faith by organizing a national expression of prayer and proclamation of who you are to this nation. We're so grateful for Dr. Graham and that you have kept him, Lord, for us this long as they expressed before, sort of our national pastor in some ways. Oh Lord, we're grateful that the word was proclaimed and certainly many who sat in that cathedral that day were unmoved, but we trust, Lord, that many were moved and that their hearts were drawn to you. We even pray for, for that uh, Muslim leader who was there and, and who shared a word that somehow the truth of Jesus Christ would reach his heart. Scripture tells us to pray for our enemies, to pray for those that despitefully use us. And, oh God, we know that it's hard to pray for those that we view as, as unjust murderers and yet the scripture puts no bounds on that prayer. And so we pray for those that are behind this, the perpetrators, the, those that have harbored them, that somehow, God, you will demonstrate your mighty power because nothing is too difficult for you. You are the king. This world is yours. The enemy is defeated. We pray you will bind him this day and exalt your name and glorify yourself in this land. We ask for a mighty revival to sweep across America, and Lord, may it begin in our hearts even this day. May we repent, Lord, where we have been indifferent and cold and, and where we have not sought you as we ought or believed you or trusted in you. Father, help us to, to just come back to the belief that power rests in prayer and that as we pray and humble ourselves, as the passage said, you will heal our land. And Father, it's not that we need a land to be restored with wealth and abundance, but we need a land that turns towards you and trusts in God and serves as a beacon of faith to the world. We're grateful for the missionaries that have been sent out from this land, and, and we pray for many of them each Sunday. But Father, we need to see a mightier beacon than this, because as it has been pointed out, we are really guilty in this land of flaunting our wealth and treating others as if they are less valuable in this world. And Father, I pray that that will change. We're just grateful, Lord, that you are the one who can do that. We trust that our president will be guided by you in every step that he takes, the cabinet, the Congress, bring unity in this land, still the mouths, the mouths of the critics and the naysayers, Lord, who, who, who criticize no matter what, if they have legitimate criticism, Lord, that's good, but just, just to complain. Oh, Father, we pray that you will unite this nation, not only behind our leader and, and uh, our government, but 
in a pursuit for truth and righteousness. May it be true in this land this day, Lord. Bless our time together now. Guide us in our study of your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may have, oh, you probably got this, because I was forwarded this four times <laughs> by four different people. So probably you have received it too. The article that was written by the Toronto, uh, Gordon Sinclair, Canadian television commentator. Th these are the remarks that he made and were printed in the congressional record. This Canadian thinks it's time to speak up for the Americans as the most generous and possibly the least appreciated people on earth. Germany, Japan, and to a lesser extent Britain and Italy were lifted out of the debris of war by Americans who poured in billions of dollars and forgave other billions in debt. None of these countries is paying even the interest on its remaining debts to the United States. When France was in danger of collapsing in 1956, it was the Americans who propped it up and their reward was to be insulted and swindled on the streets of Paris. I was there. I saw it. When earthquakes hit distant cities, it is the United States that hurries to help. This spring, 59 American communities were flattened by tornadoes. Nobody helped. The Marshall Plan and the Truman Policy pumped billions of dollars into discouraged countries. Now newspapers in those countries are writing about the decadent, warmongering Americans. I like to see just one of those countries that is gloating over the erosion of the U.S. dollar build its own airplane. Does any other country in the world have a plane to equal the Boeing jumbo jet, the Lockheed TriStar, or the DC-10? If so, why don't they fly them? Why do all of the international airlines except Russia fly American planes? Well, it has to be admitted, there, there is the Airbus, which is built by the European Consortium, which is of which there are thousands in the air. Why does no other land on Earth even consider putting a man or woman on the moon? You talk about Japanese technocracy and you get radios. You talk about German technocracy and you get automobiles. You talk about American technocracy and you find men on the moon, not once but several times and safely home again. You talk about scandals and the Americans put theirs right in the store window for everybody to look at. Even their draft dodgers are not pursued and hounded they are here on our streets, most of them. <laughs> Unless they're breaking Canadian laws, are getting American dollars from Mon Pa at home to spend here. When the railways of France, Germany, and India were breaking down through age, it was the Americans who rebuilt them. When the Pennsylvania Railroad in New York Central went broke, nobody loaned them an old caboose. Both are still broke. I can name you 5,000 times when Americans raced to help other people. Can you name me one time when someone else raced to Americans in trouble? I don't think there was outside help even during the San Francisco earthquake. Well, that's not true. Japan sent help during the San Francisco earthquake, but really nobody else did. Our neighbors have faced it alone, and I'm one Canadian who is, pardon the expression, damn tired of hearing them get kicked around. They will come out of this thing with their flag high, and when they do, they are entitled to thumb their noses at the lands, I hope they, we don't, that are gloating over their present troubles. I hope Canada is not one of those. Stand proud America, he says. I, I think it's really important, though, that we don't thumb our noses or gloat because we have what we have because of the blessing of God. It's not our doing. Nobody has room for pride at all of any sort. Not even the whoever was responsible for the, well, for the outrage um, that occurred this week. And God says he will humble the proud. He will humble the proud. Well, it kind of fits with our story, doesn't it? Uh, that we're reading about in 1 Samuel. 
I'd like to begin at the first verse of chapter 25 again, just so we refresh our minds about what we're looking at here, because this chapter also deals with the proud and with the humble, and with a proud man who is humbled. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, or as we noted, Maon. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And then there's a parenthetic statement. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Then going on, and that, that, David, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten, ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Shalom, have long life, peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. And now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and they have not been, we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on, come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, and they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and given it to men whose origin I don't know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back. They came and they told him according to all these words. Then David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 men stayed with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us. We were not insulted, nor did we miss anything, as long as we went about with them while they were in the fields, while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both night by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. He says disaster is hanging over our house. Very appropriate, isn't it? We saw the chapter began with the death of Samuel, that godly man, that prophet of God, who had served Israel so well for so many years, the man who had anointed Saul under God's direction as king and now later had anointed David to succeed Saul. Samuel had been out of the forefront of things for a while and, and now he dies. But all Israel holds a major funeral, you could say, for him. And then the story goes on to talk about David being in the wilderness of Maon. You can see the red line. That's Saul's kingdom, right? And this is Jerusalem, so you get sort of oriented. We're talking about a region that is basically down in here. 
this is basically the area where we are. Maon and the other towns between Hebron and Arad, Hebron and Beersheba down here. So if you can just picture that you're, you're between the high ridge of the land south of Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. And you're in that rather rugged area in through there, which I've tried to describe to you before. And so it's a, it's a region where uh, earning a living is not the easiest thing to do. But this, this Nabal has obviously done it relatively successfully. We find that he has uh, several thousand animals. Uh, this is the statement of wealth in those days. Uh, money wasn't, wasn't in coins or paper. They didn't have coins or paper in those days. They did have gold and silver, but, but not in those forms. But wealth was, was in movable livestock for most people anyway. And so he was a fairly well-to-do man. And the scripture parenthetically tells us there that his name was Nabal, which means fool, and that he was married to a woman whose name was Abigail, which means source of joy. <laughs> so you have a fool here married to a source of joy over here. And we talked last week about why such a marriage would have taken place. And it wasn't a romantic thing to, to begin with, certainly. It was a, ma a marriage made by the parents, undoubtedly, and therefore a mismatch uh, occurred as a result. We, we find that Nabal is at, it's at the sheep shearing time, which is always a very festal time in, in the land when it's time to shear the sheep. That's like harvest for the, for the crops. Uh, you're, you're getting the wool together and this is where you're going to earn your wealth from the wool that you sell. And so it's, it's a great time, and obviously the wool was plentiful, and he had, a th he had what, 2,000 sheep or whatever the number was there. So he's getting ready for this grand time. And it's a time of generosity. It's, a, you know, at the time of harvest when everything is plentiful, you're willing to share some of what you have with those who, who are lacking. And that's what David is hoping for here. And he sends his men to, to talk with this person. Some of David's men, whichever ones of the 600 he has entrusted with this job, were sent by David to Carmel, which was about a mile north of Maon. They're just small villages. Has nothing to do with Mount Carmel. Okay? The, the thing that you discover, and I've highlighted this before, is names are often repeated in different parts of the land, which can be confusing. There's a Mount Carmel over on the coast, uh, near the modern city of Haifa. This is a small village in the highlands of Judea, many miles from, from the mountain. They have come in David's name to ask that if Nabal, out of his abundance, wouldn't share with David and his men. Now, Nabal certainly knew of David's fame. I mean, who could have not known that David had been a hero in the land? But he also knew that David had fallen out of grace with Saul and that Saul had even pursued him. It's sort of like David's uh, name was in the post office, wanted, you know, one of the ten most wanted, probably the most wanted man. Not, not, not that serious, but nevertheless, he knew that uh, David had been a fugitive from Saul. But Nabal, rather foolishly and unfortunately flippantly, rejected David's request. And for all practical purposes, called David and his men a bunch of vagabonds. There are all kinds of people running around the countryside who have fled from their masters and are just a bunch of hoodlums. It's what he's implying here, and implying David is the same. Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? He knew very well who he was. 
Well, David's men went back to report to David that their request was not granted. And they also, of course, shared with David the attitude of the response. They didn't just say, well, Nabal said no. They explained exactly how Nabal said no. And David became very angry. True, his help had been unsolicited. Nabal had not hired him to protect his flocks and his shepherds. But David had done so. His men had protected the flocks and protected the uh, shepherds of Nabal, regardless of whether he'd asked for them to be there or not. Nabal knew this, but he demonstrates an ungrateful heart and an unwillingness to share his surplus with needy people. Even if David had not done anything, in that land at that time, the idea was that, that if you had plenty, you would, you would give to those who asked. You, you would help out the poor. As you know, they, the, the arrangement had been made back in the Pentateuch for the corners of the land were not supposed to be reaped. You were not supposed to go back and glean your crops just one time through so that the poor could go through and glean the crops like Ruth did for Naomi. And uh, the corners of the fields were to be allowed to remain so that people could... Of the, of the fields, of the orchards, of the vineyards, so that the poor could pick the fruit, or the figs, they could harvest the, the grapes, they could have the grain that was needed. This, this was the social security of those days. This, this was the welfare of those days. But Nabal will have none of it. And so I, I believe in many ways Nabal becomes the Old Testament example of the parable that Jesus gave in the 12th chapter of, of Luke. You, you know it well, but let me just read it to you again from chapter 12 of Luke, beginning at verse 16. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store all my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, drink, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I don't want to um, press this too far, but there is a parallel to this country. We are a very wealthy country. Uh, we talk about economic crisis and the downtrend of the stock market, but, but compared to the most of the world, that's nothing, absolutely nothing. Because there are mi millions, hundreds of millions of people out there who don't even know where their next meal is coming from. Now, we have shared more than any other country in history. We have shared. But have we adequately shared? You know? What do we have, a foreign aid bill of $5 billion uh, that we pass each year? And, and that's good. Very few other countries do anything like that. But what's $5 billion out of an $8 trillion economy? It's like a nickel in the pocket of somebody who's a millionaire. You know, it's not much. You know, um, I, I think it's the attitude, of course, that's the, it's, that's the heart of it, really. The dollar quantity is, isn't the, what counts. It's the attitude behind it. Are we a giving people? Are we a caring people? 
And that was what Jesus was referring to here. This, this man was thinking only of himself, only of himself. No concern whatsoever for those who are out there who are poor and needy. And so it was with Nabal. As we're going to see later, we'll get there today, but after Abigail goes and, and, and staves off David, she comes back and Nabal's holding a party in which he's squandering all that excess on himself. He wouldn't give it to others. He would just consume it on himself in, far ex in excess of his need. And so this is the attitude that both the Old and New Testament deal with because the attitude of Christ is we help those who are in need because Jesus gave himself, his life. And of course we've seen that exemplified, haven't we? We've seen many who have given their lives in this, this outrage that's occurred this week for others. And we hear multiple stories now of people who have stood by others even at their own peril. And so you do see Christ-likeness uh, exhibited in this land. And what we need, of course, is to see it on a massive scale, on a ma massive scale. David had seen a lot of injustice in his life. He had been pursued by Saul unjustly, and he had found that his fellow countrymen had turned him in over and over again, turned him in to Saul to be captured, and even were willing to help capture him. So David had had enough. He's going to teach Nabal a lesson. So he ordered 400 of his men to gird on their swords and follow him, and 200 to remain behind and guard the camp. Fortunately for Nabal's household, he had a shepherd who knew that Abigail was a wise woman. And so he ran to Abigail to tell her of Nabal's folly. I don't think he knew for sure of David's planned raid because how would he know what was going on in David's camp many miles away? But he knew David's reputation. David was a Robin Hood. And, and you know the story of Robin Hood, right? He stole from the rich to give to the poor. <laughs> he kind of evened things out. <laughs> a kind of a socialism, I suppose you could say. I'm not saying that David was a crook or a, a bad guy, but, but he did help the poor. And of course he knew that David's request had not just been turned down, but had been scorned by Nabal. And I sh I'm sure that as he saw it happen, he just, he just cringed within, the shepherd cringed within himself to see his master deal with David's men in such a haughty way. And so as he came to Abigail, he had a feeling in his gut that evil is plotted against our master and his household. Evil meaning something bad's going to happen, not necessarily meaning it's diabolic. And so that Abigail could understand the significance of Nabal's actions, the shepherd told her what had happened and what the situation had been. He told her that David's men had treated them well. You know, it, the passage does mention that we had not been insulted. Now think about that for a minute. Obviously, shepherds were used to being insulted. Uh, they, they have often been looked upon as kind of the scum of life. A lot of bad tales went around about shepherds. You know, if you're out there all by yourself with just a bunch of sheep, you can be a pretty weird person after a while. <laughs> and so they were used to being insulted, but David's men didn't insult them. They, they treated them well. And not only that, he, he tells her that they were a 24-hour-a-day wall of protection around us. So it wasn't like David's men were out there when it was nice and sunny and, you know, but then when night they all crept away. They were there the whole time to protect them. 
And as a result, they didn't lose a single sheep or goat. Now, unless you understand the world that we're talking about at that time, that might not sound like an unusual idea. But that was very unusual. For a herd of that size to lose no animals? I mean, wild animals were still running around in Israel in those days. After all, David killed a lion and David killed a bear in defense of his sheep. But not only that, there were, there, there were uh, outlaws. There were bands of nomads. Uh, there, there, all kinds of things could happen by which sheep and goats, especially lambs and kids, would be lost. I mean, you know, a shepherd can't be everywhere, and his sheep is scattered all out, uh, out all over the field, and so somebody kind of creeps up and grabs a little lamb and, and makes off with it for his meal. Easy to do. And yet not one was lost. Thus, it was only just that Nabal showed gratitude, even if it wasn't solicited, even if he hadn't, quote, hired David. He should have been very, very thankful and been willing to show his gratitude by helping those that were in need, even if it were not owed. But the shepherd calls Nabal a son of Belial to Abigail. <laughs> she, he, he comes up to Abigail, the wife, and says, your husband is a son of Belial. And that can translate in all kinds of very unkind. <laughs> what, what this, of course, demonstrated was that Abigail was not defensive of her husband. <laughs> she was so used to it that she just said, yeah. In fact, she, as we'll see, she calls him that too <laughs> later on. Apparently, some of his workers, shepherds or others, had tried to reason with Nabal and to tell him, wait a minute, this guy has helped us. You know, don't treat him this way. But he had refused to listen or, or, or even to change his mind. The shepherd had hope that Abigail, being a woman of wisdom, would listen to what he had to say, that she would reason with her husband or do something to avoid disaster, because disaster was impending. Let me read the next few verses. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread, which she just happened to have in a cupboard, of course, and, and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared, five measures of roasted grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And it came about, as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain, that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her, so she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of any who belong to him. So David was going to commit massacre. This would have been, of course, probably the death of Nabal and all of his sons. We're, we're not told if he had any sons, but he probably did. And all of his workers, which would have been even the shepherds that were being guarded by David's men. I think that's why this shepherd was so quick to come and try to get Abigail to do something, because I don't think he was care he concerned so much about Nabal as he was the whole of the household that was in danger because of this insult. Abigail, of course, knew that it was too late or not even reasonable 
to go and try to talk with her husband. She knew what kind of a person he was, what kind of character he was. So she sprang into action. She didn't just sit there and go, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? She sprang to action. And she collected all the food that was available. Now, it's, it's probably not likely that all the time that much food was sitting around in her house. But as we're going to find a little later, Nabal holds a big feast. So it could be that some of that. It says in the passage we read there that five sheep which were already being prepared. So it seems like they were already preparing possibly to at least feed the help who were doing the shearing, part of the festival, whatever. But whatever was the case, we're going to find that Nabal went ahead and had his party anyway, so somehow, you know, he still got it together. She, she gathered all this together, and of course it illustrates the wealth of the family. Very few families could even marshal a single lamb for dinner, and, and she could marshal all this food. Now, of course, all this food wasn't going to go a long ways with 600 men and their families. Thousand people probably. But, but it was something. It was something. It was a token at least to begin with. And God would use it to, to accomplish his purpose. What, what we discover in this passage as we read through it is that you, you see this tremendous contrast between this, this case-hardened fool on one side and this wise and discerning and humble woman on the other side. And David, who's kind of in between, even though closer to Abigail than to Nabal, but he's going to do a very foolish thing. And so he is a wise man, but he's about to act like a fool. And, and so Abigail is God's person of the hour. God's person of the hour. Abigail's the one to come in and be God's spokesman to save the day, as it were. And, and I think, obviously, a logical uh, application of that is that we need to pray that hopefully at least our president will be in a position of wisdom such as this. A man who seeks the, the face of God and seeks the advice of godly men such as Dr. Graham and not such a certain televangelists who are shaming us right now by the things that they're saying. We just need to pray that God's grace will be poured out on this whole situation because God brought this for good. God brought this whole chapter to a, to a good ultimate resolution. We need to pray that that's what will happen in this situation. Well, we'll come back to this uh, next week.